If you listen to the Van City podcast on a regular or even semi-regular basis, do us a favor and go to vancity.church/survey and fill out a very brief anonymous questionnaire. Thanks a lot. I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 55 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. Peter, one of Jesus' apprentices and closest friends, recognizes that Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel. But Peter was not ready to consider how this king was going to rule. This half-right, half-wrong conundrum remains among the most pressing mistakes made by those who would follow Jesus to this very day. All right, Matthew chapter 16. After uh, September 11th, 2001, the American public was understandably on edge. Nearly 3,000 people were killed and Americans wanted answers. So who did this and why and what happens next? Where do we go from here? I was 18 or 19 years old at the time. I remember being struck by how immediately and divisively God was pulled into the conversation. Not just like in the South where I lived or at church or amongst religious people, but at a national level, people were wondering about God and talking about God more than ever. Did he have something to do with this? Was he going to do something about this? What role, if any, did people who claim to follow Jesus have in whatever direction was going to be taken by post 9-11 America? In a televised CNN conversation that became infamous afterward, Southern Baptist televangelist Jerry Falwell was arguing with civil rights activist and Baptist minister Jesse Jackson. And this is a a bit of a transcript from that conversation. Falwell said to Jackson, I'd rather be killing them over there than fighting them over here when they were talking about whether or not to go to war. And Jackson rebutted, let's just stop the killing and choose peace. Let's choose negotiation over confrontation. And Falwell said, I'm for that too, but you've got to kill terrorists before killing stops. And I'm for the president to chase them all over the world. If it takes 10 years, blow them away in the name of the Lord. And Jesse Jackson said, that doesn't sound biblical to me, and that sounds ridiculous. Um, Now, whether or not you've heard those quotes or remember post-9-11 American bloodlust, this kind of conflict is likely not all that unfamiliar. Down throughout human history, those who love and follow their idea of God have often understood that God was on their side over and against the rest of the world. And that line of thinking creates arguments, and it motivates terrorism, and it gets politicians elected. And those who push back often seem foolish because the way of peace is impractical. If you want to seize power, you need a God who vanquishes evildoers, not a God who dies for them. And this, of course, is a line of thinking that fits into the story of Jesus again and again and again. And we've been at hard at work for months and months, years now, actually, studying one ancient biography of Jesus called the Gospel of Matthew. Because if we are pursuing a way of life based entirely on Jesus of Nazareth, it behooves us to know what he said and what he did and why. So let's get to the reading. Now, last week, We unpacked uh, a story in detail. If you weren't here, you can catch up on the podcast. It was the first part of this uh, collection of narratives. But let's go back and read that again so we can get to tonight's text. Let's start with uh, chapter 16, beginning with verse 13. The story goes, Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? 
And they replied, oh, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed, or that line can be translated, happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah. For this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, or a rock, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of death will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then Jesus ordered his disciples not to tell anyone he was the Messiah. Now, let's read tonight's text, which is intended to be... Uh, which is intended to flow directly from the story that preceded it. Verse 21, from that time on, meaning from the end of that story on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And then Jesus says to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, this part of the story is made up of two equally important sections. First, you have Jesus rebuking Peter, which could be summarized as the cross of Jesus. And then you have the call or the invitation to discipleship, which could be summarized as the cross of discipleship. Now, something in the story has shifted at this point, a massive reveal, and everything that follows will be played out in light of what we now know. Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel and of the world, and this long-awaited king will assume his throne by dying. And in the story, this news is particularly upsetting for one of Jesus' disciples and friends called Peter, the exact same disciple who, in the previous scene, was the first one to speak aloud the true identity of Jesus, the Messiah. And that moment was so significant that Jesus declared Peter blessed. And he said that, it's not that it was that kind of bold, confident declaration of Jesus' kingship that would become the very foundation on which this entire concept of church would be built. And here we are to this day. Now, Matthew, the, the author of this biography, he writes all that down. He writes, man, Peter is the rock on which Jesus builds the church. Peter was first among the disciples to say aloud, Jesus is the one we've been waiting for. And then Matthew transitions scenes and on the same page in most of your Bibles, Jesus is rebuking Peter, the foundation of the church. How can Peter be so right, so blessed, so in tune with the voice of God, so recognizing of Jesus' kingship in one scene, and in the very next scene, he has become a stumbling block to Jesus? 
Now to wrap our heads around it, let's do a bit of backtracking. With your finger marking Matthew 16, turn to the left in your Bible to Psalm 2. It's about halfway point in your Bible. Feel free to consult the table of contents or, you know, just click at it, stab your finger at it until you arrive at Psalm 2. And let's read Psalm 2, verse 1. You guys all right? Thanks, Lexi. And, and you too, Dave, but I heard her first, so. <laughs> Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let's break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. Yahweh scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim Yahweh's decree, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction, for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a poem about the Jewish Messiah or the coming king of Israel. And notice that in this particular poem, the Messiah is depicted as a victorious ruler wielding powerful and terrifying military might against all who would defy Yahweh. Now, that's, this theme permeates the Hebrew scriptures, at least to some degree or another, and consequently, it permeated the Hebrew understanding and expectation of the Messiah, the anointed king of Yahweh. Daniel chapter 2 describes it this way, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever." So the disciple named Simon, who Jesus renames Peter, was raised steeped in these stories and these scriptures. But it was much more than a religious upbringing. The world Peter had always known was of an oppressed people in want of a rescuer. Peter's home, the city of Capernaum, was a militarized zone occupied by a foreign presence for some 70 years at this point. The, the land belonged to Peter's ancestors, but it was ruled by the Roman Empire. And these great uh, centurion bullies reminded Peter of their lumbering presence constantly. They made daily security rounds up and down the city borders. People in Peter's community were so burdened by Roman taxes that they were often forced to sell their farms and work as debt slaves in the fields their family once owned. These occupying powers cared nothing for the stories of Peter's people, nothing for their way of life, nothing for their God. And if it wasn't these Roman oppressors, it was the Syrians and the Persians and the Babylonians before them. The only world Peter had ever known was a world of oppression. Now, right or wrong, put yourself in the mind of Peter for a moment. Raised in a world where pagans oppressed Jews, raised in ancient stories of your people that seemed to promise a coming king who would finally raise a victorious sword against the oppressors, cut them down, and finally end the tyranny against your people once and for all. There was more to the Messiah than the slaughter of pagans. He was promised to be good and gracious, a king who would bring peace and goodness to the land of Israel, a kingdom long in want of a good king. 
And then you, Peter, of all people, a simple young fisherman, are chosen by this magnetic rabbi to become his apprentice or disciple. And after years of walking with this strange, incredible teacher, you come to believe, to truly believe, man, this is the anointed king of Israel, the good king, the one who's going to inaugurate a kingdom that will never end. In fact, there comes a moment in your apprenticeship to the rabbi when this teacher looks you dead in the eye and asks, who do you say I am? And you answer without hesitation, you are the coming king. And Jesus agrees, yep, you got it right. So imagine the impact that a thing like that would have on Peter. This is the king. This is the one. In your lifetime, you are going to see the oppressor overthrown, Israel restored. Jesus, your teacher, your friend, is going to be on the throne. Your people have waited, prayed for this for generation after generation, and you will be at the Messiah's side when it finally happens. But... (laughs) No sooner than you've declared the truth of Jesus' identity, you're the king, and had him look you in the eyes and say, yep, that's right, so what's the plan? How will the kingdom come? What happens next? Jesus looks at you and says, we're going to make our way to the holy city, and when we get there, I am going to suffer many things, and then I'm going to die. What? Remember, to you, this isn't just the Messiah. This is your teacher. This is your friend, the one you've lived and walked with every moment of every day for years at this point. You love him. So what else would Peter say? Never, Lord. He says, this will never happen to you. It seems to me this is not only an understandable reaction given the circumstances, it's the understandable reaction. The Messiah has come to seize victory, not defeat, to end the suffering of Israel, not to suffer himself. He's come to vanquish pagans, not be vanquished by pagans. Scholar N.T. Wright says it this way, their natural next move would be to sit down and plan their strategy. If he's Jesus, this is the king, and his people are going to be like the house built on the rock, they must figure out how to get rid of the present kings and priests who are ruling Israel. The obvious solution would be this. March on Jerusalem, pick up supporters on the way, choose your moment, say your prayers, fight a surprise battle, take over the temple, install Jesus as king. That's how the Son of Man will be exalted in his kingdom. That, we may be sure, was something like what they had in mind. And notice the language in verse 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, meaning this is a new dimension of Jesus' ministry and his teaching. Now, my Bible translates the next phrase, uh, from that time on, he began to teach him that he must go. That phrase is actually a single Greek word. It's die. It refers to a divine necessity, meaning this is something that God wants to happen. It's not just he has to do it. God wills that this will happen. Yahweh's anointed king is saying that Yahweh has asked him to go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and die. And the word suffer is even more intense than it sounds. Some commentators suggest a more literal translation might be to bear everything. Now, this may fly in the face of common Jewish Jewish expectations, but this isn't a thing that Jesus just lifted out of thin air. The idea of a suffering Messiah actually shows up in the Hebrew Scriptures. Look at this passage from Isaiah 53 that says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. 
Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is drawing here in Matthew 16 imagery from the prophet Isaiah to explain that he is the messianic king but that he will claim his throne not by military power, but by becoming a suffering servant. Now, in Jewish thinking, Jerusalem or Zion was the place where the Messiah would be revealed to the world. And Jesus says that he's going to Jerusalem now, get excited, but to suffer and die. So it's like insult to injury. And the end of this sobering announcement, Jesus does say point blank that I will be raised on the third day. But notice that if that made any sense to Peter, it probably didn't. He sure doesn't acknowledge it at all. If you know the story, despite the fact that Jesus was pretty gratuitous with spoilers about coming back from the dead, none of them seem to register with the disciples, at least not really. In fact, when Jesus does come back to life on the third day, just like he said several times that he would, they can't believe that this happened. (laughs) Where did this idea come from? So scholars argue that they took him saying this maybe as something like a platitude, like he's saying, I'm going to suffer and die, but don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Or maybe they heard what he said, but they never considered that he was making like a literal claim about a bodily resurrection from the dead that was actually going to happen. And this is clear enough from Peter's response. In verse 22, he says, it says that Peter took Jesus aside, like he's like, come here, let's have a moment. This is a teaching moment for you, Jesus. And he says, never, this is not going to happen to you. In fact, literally, he says, God is merciful to you. This is not going to happen, which seems pretty intense, but this is actually a, a loving rebuke. Bruner says it this way. Peter, apparently moved by his recent naming as Rock of the Church, sensing his new responsibility and perhaps feeling pastoral obligations as well, takes Jesus aside in order not to embarrass him in front of the other disciples. Peter's is a friendly rebuke, a well-meant reprimand, such as friends give when people are too hard on themselves. And then he goes on to point out this. What this encounter teaches us, among other things, is that we not only err when we follow our worst thoughts, We as often and more seriously err when we follow our best thoughts, such as the fine thought of the connection between the mercy of God and the protection of the faithful. I think Bruner is getting at something crucial here, but let's get to that a bit later. For now, don't read this as Peter who's like hostile and belligerent, scolding Jesus and like prideful cluelessness. Remember, Peter's line of thinking, though wrong, we know, isn't based on nothing. He thinks he's doing Jesus a favor. And what happens? Verse 23, Jesus turns, more literally, it's turned on his heel at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So Jesus is immediately upset. He reacts strongly in the moment. And the Greek words translated as get behind me are actually quite similar to the first two words Jesus ever spoke to Peter, come follow me. So here in context, obviously, there's an inferred emotional meaning, and it's different, but uh, Jesus is saying essentially the same thing. You need to follow me, not be out in front of me. And then he calls Peter Satan, which I'm sure was a bummer for Peter at the time. Uh, Matthew is drawing a parallel between this story and an earlier narrative in which Jesus was tempted by Satan to save his own life. 
So previously, Peter was a rock, and now Jesus calls him a stumbling block. Or another way of translating that line is actually, you are a very big problem for me. So make no mistake, Jesus is quite clearly rebuking Peter. He's essentially saying, back in your place, Peter. If you follow Jesus, it is never your place to lead Jesus. Get behind me and follow me. Now, it should go without saying, but in our current cultural milieu, it likely bears saying again and again and again that to rebuke or to enforce a position of authority are not in and of themselves unloving things to do. The cultural zeitgeist reads, to ever correct another person is an affront to their personhood and thus unloving. But of course, this line of thinking is usually proclaimed with breathtaking hypocrisy Uh, that what this philosophy really means is almost always never correct or confront the morals or lifestyle of another person unless you do so adhering to corporate groupthink. Correct these people, not these people. You are not allowed. But really, none of that is really here nor there for our conversation. If you follow Jesus, you obey Jesus. It doesn't matter what the cultural zeitgeist does or doesn't say and what amount of consistency they apply it to their lives. Disciples of Jesus follow Jesus within the context of our teacher-apprentice relationship, Jesus can and often will rebuke us. And this is an outworking of his love for us. My two kids are experimenting currently with what level of sass they can use to rebut instruction without being punished. A little bit of sass, soft correction. A lot of sass, oh, geez, okay. So let's find, you know, they're looking for the medium. So in our house at the moment, there's a lot of me sounding like my dad as of late, which in this case, I'm very happy to do. There's a lot of, you do not talk to me or your mom that way. Less scary probably, or more, I don't know. Um, A lot of, actually, yes, you will do exactly what we said. And sometimes uh, other parents, you know, we get together and you trade battle stories or we're in community and they just see what's happening. They ask like, oh man, what are you going to do if your kid, they just, they're already saying they don't want to do something or they throw tantrums, they don't want to go to a given place or wear a certain thing or whatever it might be that a kid doesn't want to do. And Abby and I are always like, well, we're going to do it anyway. What do you mean? We are the authorities in our house. That's kind of how it works. Not them. They don't get to tell us what to do. So yeah, we're going to go to this or that place or they're going to wear this or that thing or whatever it might be. So the other day, after one of these incidents where, uh, you know, there was an enforcing of authority over my son Beck, he essentially accused me of being unloving, which is very 2019 of him. He was like, you're not being nice, you're not loving, or something like that. So then I sat down, and in like a translated way to a five-year-old, I was telling him that, you know, like, as his parents, we know Uh, and love him enough to often tell him things that he doesn't want to hear and to enforce things that he doesn't like in the moment because we're more concerned with his overall well-being than his momentary satisfaction or his very narrow understanding of the big picture. And it's an easy analogy, I know. But to Jesus, this is too important a point to mince words or to coax and accommodate and to pander to Peter. There are other stories where Jesus is almost comically uh, gentle and sensitive and patient, and there are other places where Jesus is uh, pretty upfront with his rebuke. He says, no, get back in your place. And while we're at it, that's why he's like, while we're at it, this goes for all of you guys. He starts talking to the disciples. Jesus is about to say, listen, if you don't like the idea of me suffering and dying, you're not going to like what's in store for you either. And he goes on in verse 24. He starts talking about whoever wants to be my disciple has to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. 
And then at the end in verse 28, he says this weird thing. Truly I tell you, some of you are standing here will not taste death until or before you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So before we talk about the call to take up your cross, let's get verse 28 out of the way because that's weird, right? What the heck does that mean? Why did Jesus promise his disciples that some of them would still be alive to see him coming in his kingdom? Clearly, Jesus wasn't referring to what we often now call the renewal of all things uh, or the resurrection, a future event on which the church is still waiting because the apostles miss that by a long shot, if you didn't know. They are all at the moment very dead. Um, There are several theories about what Jesus must have meant by saying that. It could have been his transfiguration, which is a really weird thing that happens next in the story, actually. That's my commercial for next week. Or maybe he was talking about his resurrection from the dead, which they all saw. Or maybe it was the uh, Spirit of God being given to the apostles in Acts at Pentecost, if you know that story. Or maybe it's parts of all these things. We're not sure what is happening is basically an encouragement that follows a difficult teaching. Yes, it is going to be very hard, but I promise you will live to see why this matters. Jesus, back from the dead, the arrival of the Spirit, the proliferation of the kingdom. So this taking up your cross thing is not just character development or blind, miserable obedience. It is the way to life. And Jesus is saying, you'll see why. So here we have in this story a quintessential Jesus, really. It's the invitation to life. Sounds awesome. Invitation to discipleship. You can come follow me, whoever you are. Sounds awesome. But it comes prepackaged with self-denial, suffering, and death. And not only that, but also typical of Jesus, the call to discipleship is accompanied by a sobering warning of judgment. He says terrifyingly that he will, and I quote, reward each person according to what they have done. What's up with that? You know, isn't Jesus supposed to say he will reward each person according to grace alone by faith alone, not by what they have done? And the reason that that strikes many of us as odd is because many of us were taught at one point or another or came to assume that it is somehow possible to live consistently at odds with what one believes intellectually. So it doesn't matter what you do. What matters is what you believe about Jesus in your heart. But to Jesus and the authors of the Bible, the way you live is always the most accurate embodiment of what you believe. And the two are never wholly separate. Meaning, you can make mistakes. Sure, we err. There are gaps in our quest to align our lives with our beliefs. We don't always get it right. That's to be expected. But Jesus has been quite clear all along. If you want to know who follows him and who does not follow him, examine the things that they do. Fundamental to this way of living will be the willingness to follow Jesus even into trouble. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow Jesus to death. I'm convinced personally that the root of so much trouble in the modern Christian experience is is our buying into the widely held belief that suffering and discomfort should always be avoided or at least mitigated and that God always and only wants us to be happy and comfortable in a superficial sense. So I'm uh, currently nearing the end of my graduate school adventure, just a a few credits to go. In the beginning, I was noticing, because I was at school last week, I was noticing that, man, in the beginning, a million years ago and a million dollars ago, I I remember feeling like kind of pensive and not afraid, but maybe a bit guarded about like getting into theological debates and arguments with professors and students. But as the classes and the years wore on, I just felt less and less guarded and more and more concerned with keeping things interesting, you know? So year one, I might, like I would wait for like a quiet part and then like look around and say, 
that's an interesting perspective. <laughs> and then like, but wouldn't some argue, and some in this case was me, but now I'm more like, man, you guys are freaking nuts. Here's what I think, you know. Um, and, and please note, in context, I'm always respectful and kind. I just figure I'm the one paying for this dang thing. We may as well mix it up a bit, you know. So I'm in class right now uh, with a professor who holds many theological positions that are the exact opposite of mine. He's very nice. We get along great. It is what it is. But most noteworthy, he believes that God controls and ordains everything that happens, including evil. I believe God does not control or ordain everything that happens, especially evil, that evil is a natural outworking of a broken world. Human and spiritual beings have free decision-making capacity. So the class I'm in is about responding to theological problems. So for my first big paper, I wrote about how to respond to professors who believe that God controls everything. Because you got to mix it up, man. I'm paying for the dang thing. Anyway, the reason I brought all that up is that uh, uh, in class, a legitimate question was broached, which is, man, why even argue? Why argue so heatedly on this topic, the problem of evil? Who ultimately is to blame for it? And if you know me at all, or if you've been around Van City, you know this is an area of passionate interest for me personally, something I bring up often. But tonight's text is getting at one of the reasons this matters. If you make any correlation between your faithfulness to God and the comfortability of your life, you are playing at a dangerous game. If you assume on any level, consciously or subconsciously, that you enjoy some kind of contractual agreement with God, I do my part, he does his part, if I don't do my part, he won't do his part, you set yourself up for frustration and misery. So much of our conversation lately at Van City has been about learning to accept that life includes suffering, just as much and often more so for those who follow Jesus. Why? Because I think ours is a life of self-denial, of being the few against the many, of enemy love and nonviolence and self-sacrifice, of learning daily to give ourselves away just as our teacher and Lord gave himself away. And that is a good way of life, but not an easy way of life, at least not all the time. But in the mind of Jesus and of his followers throughout church history, that wasn't a bummer. Liken it to the risk of love for example. It's always more risky to love than not to love, right? To love your family or to love a friend deeply or to love someone romantically or to have kids and love them. In any and each of these endeavors of love, you are making yourself vulnerable at a soul level because you face the sting of rejection, the wounding of being wronged by someone that you love, the raw agony of grief and loss. And for some of us, that's worth it. Love is worth it. So we walk in friendship, or we navigate the messiness of family over the long haul, or we choose to get married, or we choose to have kids. And then, paradoxically, the source of your greatest joy and intimacy becomes your greatest vulnerability to suffering. And when some of us feel the full weight of that suffering, we run from love, or we withdraw from intimacy, or we withhold intimacy from other people, or we enact modes of self-preservation and draw away. But others just choose to go on loving, even so, headlong into the fray. And so it is with following Jesus. We will have trouble, and like Jesus said, each day has enough trouble of its own, but Jesus is the only way to life and the only way to God, the Father. 
So if you've been around Van City for a bit, maybe this sounds like a sermon you've heard before, but there are two reasons for it. The first is just because it's a sermon I like doing. Sue me. The second and more valid reason is that if you attempt to teach through a biography of Jesus, try it, uh, let alone supplementing it with practices taking from the life, taken from the lifestyle of Jesus, then the way of the cross or self-denial comes up again and again and again. It's almost like Jesus knew then and now, that this would be a difficult teaching for us to comprehend, let alone realize and embody as a way of life. And the world is not taking kindly to self-denial at the moment. We want, most of the time, I know I do most of the time, as Peter did, our idea of the good life, our idea of a good and comfortable future for ourselves and the people we love, our idea of fulfillment, And it's not all bad. It's not always bad. Remember, Jesus taught that God is your Father. He cares deeply for your joy. He cares deeply for your soul satisfaction. I believe He cares in the superficial sense. Do I care if my kids are comfortable and happy in the superficial sense? Of course I do. And if I can accommodate that in any way, I usually do, big time. But I care more for the goodness of their lives in the broad, most meaningful sense. So I know that there will often be discomfort and pain in the more narrow sense so that we can pursue meaning in the broader sense. But the culture around you is more like the enabling, cowardly parent who would willingly do their children long-term damage to spare themselves temporary discomfort. Because the cultural ethos reads, do not deny, indulge. Silence all who encourage denial. Find your own truth. Diet Coke, Instagram, all that. The world does not take kindly to the way of Jesus in this sense, quite frankly. I was, as I was reading and writing this week, I was thinking about some close friends in my life who are attracted to members of the same sex and who have decided upon the teachings of Jesus to lead a life of deliberate and disciplined celibacy of their own volition. So part of them, their story is same-sex attraction, but they have also come to believe that Jesus and the Bible teach that sexuality for a disciple of Jesus anyway is expressed between a man and a woman in a lifelong monogamous marriage covenant. So they deny themselves and they take up their cross and they follow Jesus. And when I talk to them and I hear their stories, they often talk about being bombarded by outrage from the people around them. How could you deny yourself? Surely Jesus doesn't want that. And if he does, then he's better left behind. And it's for this very reason that Jesus requires that we take up our cross. It's for that very reason that many abandon the road of discipleship altogether. If you plan to follow Jesus, beware the worship of victory. Beware the pie-in-the-sky, you know, curated Instagram veneer of an always awesome life free of pain and suffering. I think it's not enough to say, like, as a footnote, and sometimes we might have a hard time, but in the words of Jesus, in this world, you will have trouble. But then Jesus says, you know the quote, take heart, I have overcome the world. So beware, too, the worship of defeat. In the teachings of Jesus, trouble is always on the way. But trouble is always paltry before the greater victory of hope. He says in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, guaranteed. But take heart, 
I have overcome the world. Or in Matthew 6, you get get the same promise in the reverse order. Jesus says, seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. But then the warning, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So beware of those dire, wrist-slapping prophets of doom who would have you collapse beneath your cross and rot in the dirt. Yes, Jesus took up his cross, carried it to death, but on the third day was raised again. Yes, in this world you will have trouble, but Jesus has overcome the world. Yes, you will lose your life to follow Jesus, but in doing so, you will somehow find life. The only way to follow Jesus is by first denying yourself and taking up your cross, but then you follow Jesus to life, and not just life, but life to the fullest. This is the paradox of discipleship. So to end, I want us to combine these two stories and arrive at an important conclusion. Peter recognized that Jesus was the king, but he was not ready to consider how this king was going to rule. And this half-right, half-wrong conundrum remains among the most pressing mistakes made by those who would follow Jesus to this very day. Our discipleship must be more than just Christ-centered. It must also be cross-centered. Jesus is the king. He came to restore all things, to usher in a kingdom that will never end, to destroy the devil's work once and for all, that we might be free of suffering and death. But to assume the throne, King Jesus went through suffering and death, not around them. And he's inviting us to do the same thing. So the question, I think, for you and me is, what is our cross? What is your particular cross that you are to take up in denying yourself and following Jesus? Is it a a broken part of your wiring and personality? Is it an ambition that's at odds with the kingdom of God? Is it the difficult challenge to love your enemies? Is it the laying aside of a dream that you had for yourself or a relationship that you wanted for yourself? Is it the loosening of your death grip on money and comfort and things? Maybe to you it seems like your cross is heavier than someone else's, but pain is pain, and anyone who follows Jesus takes up a cross. The question you have to ask yourself is, can you believe Jesus when he tells you that this is the way to life. I think God sympathizes that it's really hard, but he doesn't adjust the ask. He sees the the limited scope of your understanding and your ability, and like a good father with a growing child, he sympathizes, and then he keeps asking you to follow anyway. Standing on the edge of a cliff, it's easy to believe that you'll fall to your death, and it's really hard to believe that you won't. But when Jesus stands promising to catch you that this is the way to life, somehow you have to die to live, then you have to make a tough decision and ask yourself a tough question. Can you do that? Jesus doesn't design an obstacle course out of your life. I don't believe that he um, berates you with misfortune just so that you can prove you have what it takes. Instead, I think he urges us to understand that in a broken, evil world, you'll have trouble. Things will be wonderful, often. For me, the first half of my day I out with my family, I was just constantly thinking, like, this is beautiful. Almost everything about everything around me 
fills my heart with love and joy. Life is often effortlessly beautiful and easy and wonderful. And then it will also be bad, in some cases very bad. But take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. And more than that, he's the only one who can overcome the world. So the invitation is to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow him. Let's pray and uh, ask God's Spirit to empower us to do that tonight and in the days to come. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vancity financially at vancity.church/give.